Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners, designed for culture. Today, we have a special show, an interview show. No halftime, no list recap. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Dory Tunstall. Dory, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to join you, John. So to get started, you're a woman of many titles. To get started, for those who don't know you, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do and where you've been? Sure. So I am Dr. Dory Tunstall, but everyone just calls me Dory, although some people like to call me Dr. Dory if they're trying to be more formal and respectful. Right now, I am the founder and lead executive officer of Dory Tunstall, Inc., which is a company that helps organizations and institutions decolonize their design processes. Most recently, as of uh, June, I was the dean of the design at OCAD University in Toronto, Canada, where I led the institution through their own decolonization process for a period of about seven years. And I'm here in Riverside, California, acknowledging the land and water of air of the Kauia, Tongva, Lusangyo, and Serrano peoples, and all their ancestors and descendants past, present, and future. I am, I should say, likewise. I am, we're also going to talk about your new book, well, new, it came out this year. And because I've read the book and I'm a fan, uh, I would also make like to make a land acknowledgement. You and I are talking remotely we're in different places so this is a making the museum land acknowledgement making the museum stands in honor of the first people and our ancestors mtm acknowledges the land on which this recording facility stands the original homeland of the lenape people and the painful history of genocide and forced removal from this territory mtm honors the generations of stewards and we pay our respects to the many diverse indigenous peoples still connected to this land I'm not sure what the correct land acknowledgement is for a a Zoom call, but I think <laughs> whatever it is, we just covered it, and I feel good about that. Me so too. You, yeah, that's why we should always do this. Actually, what I just said is true. So you have also just written a book, or you probably wrote it uh, over time, but it came out this year, and that is called Decolonizing Design, a Cultural Justice Guidebook by Dr. Dory, or Elizabeth <laughs> Tunstall here, and that just came out just now, and that is available everywhere, right? I read it on Kindle, yeah. but you can get that anywhere books are sold, right? Yes, and my, my, my favorite pastime has been now looking and checking all the public libraries where it's available, so I checked it in Los Angeles, I've checked it in Seattle where I was on tour recently, so it's so available from many different places. The thing I always strongly suggest is getting them from your local independent bookstores, mm -hmm, um, sure. if possible, and but also get them from the library. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Is it? There are also many, obviously, design departments, design faculties, and design organizations. I'm betting that all of them ought to be stocking this, right? Yes, and many of them have. I'm about ready to go on October on a six-week book tour mixture of industry and design education institutions. And what's been so thrilling is that everyone has had all of their faculty members read the book. Mm -hmm. And and now they're setting up all the lectures to convince their students to engage with the book more deeply by meeting the author, which is exciting. Hmm. Wow. That's, that is terrific. You and I met at, at a conference, a design conference, SEGD's 50th annual conference in Washington, D.C. You were on stage. You were being interviewed about the book and your life and other things. And I was there in the audience taking notes. And then you were gracious enough to agree to come on this show. And partly, I would very much like to get people, if they, I'm not sure what to say, if they do nothing else, they should blank. And one of the blanks is definitely get the book, because I found the book transformative for myself. And I think we're going to spend the bulk of our time together talking about the book or using the book as a roadmap for a conversation because the book, I think, is a roadmap not just for a conversation but for a lot of other things. So let's see. I do want to mention to people in case anybody is thinking like, what is this book decolonizing 
design, I, I do want to mention that uh, I'm not the only person who's noticed it. I'm going to read from the New York Times book review. I'm going to quote here, quote, a crusader for equity in teaching design finds a formula that works across borders and sectors with critical importance for society as a whole. Tunstall gives step-by-step instructions for reducing bigotry's impact on the built environment. That is the New York Times book review. So we are not kidding around here. You'd better go get that book, Tooth Sweet. We also have some, also some wonderful words from places like the Boston Globe and Fast Company, speaking to your past work in the tech sector yourself and so forth. So really can't say enough good about the book. And I'm sure lots more will come out in our discussion. So I have lots of questions. I want to pepper you with questions about this book. I'm sure anyone who's read it will have the same kinds of questions. It's really a terrific read. I also want to mention it's actually it's also a fast read. I think that's by design. You wanted yes, to make sure that's... that people had as few excuses to get this <laughs> thing done as possible. And and I read it all in one sitting. I gulped it down. I just kept around. It's 132 pages. Depending on your reading speed, that could be 132 minutes, and it's a good 132 minutes. So I want to start with a, a simple question, actually, just to set the stage for listeners who are just walking into this subject. What is, could you define decolonization? Yeah. De- decolonization is basically, at its simple truth, restoring indigenous sovereignty to the land and then the fact that they've built their cultures on the land revitalizing language, relationship, ceremony, all of those sort of things. And what I mean by indigenous people is that, as we said in the land acknowledgement, right? That in places like the United States or Canada or Brazil or many places around the world, there are a group of settlers, many of them in the last 500 years came from Europe, who made their homes on the land of the original people who lived there, right? So that's the process of colonization was that process of of people coming to a new land basically eliminating murdering the people who live there in order to have access to that land and when that didn't work trying to set up policies of assimilation to bring them into the wider society that they have built decolonization is the steps that we take to a, address that history, its contemporary manifestations, and then begin to create structures that bring back indigenous sovereignty over the land. And that is paramount for the ways in which we we set up our relationship to the land. All of our challenges we find around sustainability are all directly tied to colonization. All of the challenges we face in terms of social Injustice is uh, through the hierarchy that has been set up by colonization, which is not to say oppression didn't exist before, but the last 500 years of it has had this particular flavor of colonization within it. So decolonization is how we begin to reverse those processes so that we get back to sovereignty uh, for the people who were the original custodians of the land. So in a way, the word is what it is. Like there's a colony on the land. We have to get it off. Like we have to decolonize the thing. Your book, however, is called Decolonizing Design. You were, you have been an academic leader at more than one institution, most recently at OCAD in Canada and teaching in the design faculty. Can you say a little bit more about what decolonizing design is as a definition and also what your role in design has been. I feel like I know a lot about you. We were talking (laughs) in the green room before the show. I feel like I know all about you, but of course, I only know a a tiny fraction, but I'd love the listeners to know more about you. So what is decolonizing design? What are you up to? What are you trying to achieve? And why is it, why design? Where have you been in design? So design for me is so important because it's, my background is as, is a anthropologist. So I actually consider myself a design anthropologist, which is I look at the relationship between culture and design. What is it that we make and the meaning that we build into the things that we make? Because by giving those meanings form, 
in many ways, we want those values to continue for multiple generations, right? That's what culture is, the things that we decide we want to pass on to future generations. So in the context of, of design, design is amazing. It's how we make our world tangible and present for us, which reinforces our identities, reinforces our social relationships with one another. We've built this culture of design, which we define in many ways as something that happened in Europe in the 1800s, <laughs> erasing in many ways, let's say, the context of Australia, where I used to work, 65,000 years of making for the indigenous peoples who've lived there, documented making, right? That's been there. So decolonizing design is the sense that on the one hand, it's taking the story that we've told about design as something that happened in Europe in the 1800s and dismantling that to, in order to create space in many ways for indigenous ways of making that, like I said, for many indigenous cultures in North America, we're talking 20, 25,000 years of making, innovative making, in harmony with the environment, in harmony with the ecological systems that need to survive, and in harmony with living with other human beings. So decolonizing design is in many ways first unpacking, dismantling the story that we've told about what design is, recognizing all of the different forms of making that have existed across time and space, dismantling in many ways the hierarchy that we've said that say European design is at the top. <laughs> Asian design might be somewhere in the middle and then everyone else, the, their craft. They don't even count as design, right? So beginning to dismantle that hierarchy, beginning to dismantle this story so that we can truly embrace all the different traditions and contemporary innovations in making that's happening all over the world. That's really what it is. And, and how that relates to what I said before is that if we're able to embrace, again, a world that is shaped by indigenous ways of knowing and indigenous ways of being, then we won't be so afraid of indigenous sovereignty because we've already been in that environment and recognize that the values that are coming through is making our lives better. Because of the way you, that, because of what you just said, I want to ask another question, a follow-up, which is you say in the book, after sharing some of your own personal journey and being very vulnerable about mistakes that you made in figuring out that mm -hmm. this was true, that decolonization, decolonizing design has to be indigenous first. Um, yeah. Can you say, and also, I think, I'm guessing, you use a term in your book I've never seen before. I've seen it spelled a different way. Normally, I see the term spelled BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C, <laughs> that that's related to the concerns of black, indigenous, and people of color. But you reverse that, and I think they're related. Am I reading between the lines yeah. correctly? You say <laughs> well, I-B-P-O-C. Correct. And that, that's not me. That's Maybe we'll go through the connection thing, is because that'll tend to express this. When I first moved from Australia to Canada, everyone was talking about BIPOC, black, indigenous, and POC. And so POC is like the umbrella term that refers to people who are Latinx, Asian, Middle Eastern, anyone who's not black and non, non-black, non-indigenous and non-white, basically. And I was baffled when I first arrived in Canada because, for example, I understand the term POC to be inclusive of blacks. In fact, the origins of the term was from black women realizing that they were in solidarity with other women of color. So it started with women of color. Mm -hmm. And then from that, just saying people of color to be more embraceive of a variety of genders and people, right? So I understood POC to be always inclusive with Black. So at first, I was a little upset because I'm like, why are you excluding Black people from POC? Because they are the or origins of the term POC. But what my friends and colleagues explained was the fact that those positionalities operate quite differently. In Canada, but also in the United States, because in the United States, 
we do a lot of erasure in some ways because we like these big categories where I think in Canada, you're able to maintain a little bit more nuance in your identities. So Indigenous first comes from understanding again that, that as the term BIPOC became more popular in use, that Indigenous people were feeling, well, why are you putting Black first? Because again, in the histories that especially you say in the United States where there has been, let's say, (laughs) the voice of the civil rights movement has been traditionally a black voice in the United States and by population that when the orientation around racial relations in the United States was very black and white and which contributed to the erasure of indigenous structure and Indigenous sovereignty, like the struggle for Indigenous sovereignty. And part of the thing that by trying to elicit these differences in relationship and that Indigenous people in relationships to land, their original custodians of land, and the work that's been done to them through colonization is that the intent was to assimilate them, right? For Blacks, their relationship to the land, most Blacks, in terms of like multi-generational, were brought to places as enslaved populations, right? Which means they're not settlers in the traditional sense. Like they didn't, like I say, my ancestors didn't come to the United States to build a better life. You will never find us on the rolls of Ellis Island and all those things. We came as someone put us on the slave ship and said, you will come here to work the fields. So our narrative and our relationship is quite different. And again, because of laws of white supremacy for many, 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 many years, they were never to be assimilated within the state. And then what we talk about for this great the category of POC, which again gets when you get into the nuances, it becomes quite varied in terms of different groups' experiences, but generally they've left their lands mostly due to colonizing forces that were happening in their homelands in some ways as settlers to build a better life. And their relationship to like assimilation within the laws, whatever, depends on like how the color of their skin depends on how much education and wealth they may have had. But it is always a painful journey for them to make choices of assimilation. And then you have European settlers who, again, actively come to the United States in order to build a better life and have set up this structure, right? This legal structure, this health structure, this education structure, this financial structure to support them building a better life, even if it means that process is harming Indigenous people, Black people, other POC people, right? So that's like the whole entire framework. of, And so we all have to understand our positionality in relationship to it. And that's like the first step, right? And if you're wanting to do the work of decolonization, right? And in the context of decolonizing design, the first step is really understanding what is your positionality in relationship to Indigenous people and their struggle for sovereignty. What that means in terms of that, and so there has been a lot of discussion in the indigenous community about, again, why BIPOC? Why putting Black first instead of indigenous first? And so in response to this, like, I didn't create this, others created it. I shifted my own language to say, I BIPOC, right? Putting indigenous first. For me, the humility that I needed to cultivate which I had already done again in the book. It's been a, it's not, it's, I've been engaged in the struggle for indigenous sovereignty for a really long time, right? <laughs> Going back elementary school in terms of understanding and knowing and what that means within my own family, what that means in terms of the relationships I have with indigenous people and their communities that really reached its deepest understanding when I went to Australia and began to work closely with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and individuals. And then when I came, like I got, I ended up coming to Toronto because I had already had those experiences and 
Oak Hat University was looking for a dean who could, and this is the call for the dean, could facilitate processes of decolonization and indigenous revitalization. So because I had that experience in Australia, working closely with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, that I came was the top candidate to come and do that work at OCAD. And now, so this is to say it's a long journey of figuring out your positionality. And again, it's what's your relationship to the land? And many ways, like what's your relationship to the laws of the land, whether the laws of the land support you or do not support you? And then what is your strategy of resistance if the laws of the land don't support you? But if you're not actively engaged in understanding that positionality, you might be doing diversity equity work, but you're not doing decolonization work, right? And again, the goal is to ask yourself, what am I doing in order to support indigenous sovereignty over the lands, languages, cultures, right? And there are many different strategies that you can use to do that. And I, the book comes out of some of the strategies that I developed myself, but, but that's really, that's the difference in the work, right? Is decolonization is always about how to, in some ways, position yourself in solidarity with the indigenous struggle for sovereignty. And I want to I want to ask a question. Just again, some sort of um, definition or sort of uh, you know vocabulary things. You mentioned obviously your book is about decolonizing design. You also mentioned DEI. You just said DEI. Yeah. Another word that we commonly hear: DEI, DEIA, DEAI. What? How for our listeners? <clears throat> we're getting our heads wrapped around this. What? How would you define? those two things, DEI and decolonization, is are all squares rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares? <laughs> yeah, or yeah. are they skew lines? Or I don't know why I'm going into geometry <laughs> here, but um, <clears throat> what is the what is the relationship between these two things? I think I know the answer, but I don't want to guess. The way I try to organize it for myself is that diversity, equity, and inclusion work is about bringing people into the system. So we say, oh, we don't have enough black people, so we're going to try to hire more black people. We don't have enough women in leadership, so we're going to set up a program to prepare more women to be in leadership. It keeps in some ways, it changes, modifies the structure, but it generally keeps the structure in place. With decolonization, you have to question the validity of the institution itself. You have to question, again, the governance. You have to question who's making decisions. You have to question, again, what are the ways in which we are respecting the land? What are the ways in which we are respecting communities? It, it puts into question the entire legitimacy of the institution organization in and of itself. So a lot of people, again, have moved towards, okay, it's 2020, we realize because of the pandemic, how bad things really, really are for Black folks, right? So we're going to hire more of them, bring them more into leadership, et cetera, et cetera. And again, this is important work because the way in which the strategies of exclusion has worked for Black African-Americans, Black folks, is that that's the whole system was set up for many, many years to exclude. So bringing them in is a major shift. But if you bring them in and you're asking them to assimilate, then you're not dismantling the structure in and of itself. You're just bringing more people in. So the goal of decolonization is not to just bring people in. That's a strategy you almost have to do in order to be able to understand which aspects of the organization and the institution has been harmful. And then having the people at the table to be able to say, how do we dismantle the harm that our institution has been creating in the world? And the answers, the people who know the answers are the people who know the hurts, who knows the exclusions and the pain. 
And and then in the context of, again, is that what I say to organizations is that if you want to know how to build good relations with any community, start building those relationships with the indigenous community. Because first of all, they've also had long histories of exclusion. They've had long histories of well-deserved mistrust (laughs) and betrayal. So if you get to the point where you have built trust with indigenous communities, that means the very act of being able to do that means you have dismantled most of the structures that you have in place that have kept them out, right? That you have developed a sense of reciprocity and understanding of doing things that are beyond your own self-interest that will make everything better for everyone. And then all of those things that you put in place to be able to support the sovereignty and revitalization of indigenous communities and nations, right? The many of them were independent nations. If you've done all of that, then every other relationship you build with any other group will be based on that same respect, (laughs) reciprocity, relationality that you have actively built with Indigenous community first. So it sounds like my kind of dumb metaphor about squares and rectangles is maybe not the case, but, and this isn't, this is going to be a very glib summary of something you just said, much, much more elegant fashion, but decolonization is, is a deeper solution. It's not that DEI initiatives are bad, that's not the issue, but decolonization is better. It should be something that's done in a deeper way, indigenous first. And then that sets the stage very quickly for DEI that initiatives that presumably are done much more naturally and much more yeah. easy. They, they, fall, they fall in place much more easily because you've examined the machine. You're not just putting a little frosting on top of the cake. You've remade the cake or exactly. you're trying to. Do I have that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, and, and for me, what I explore in like saying my mistakes and all those things in the books, like the way in which by being who I am, that I've harmed indigenous colleagues and those who out of pure love have corrected my behaviors in order to bring me back into good relations, that I, those, that all, all the things that I do have done to maintain good relations with indigenous friends and those that I care about are the things that I've built in now all of my relations with people coming from the thing where it's make mistakes. It's not the mistake that's being made. That's the problem. It's the lack of repair, right? So what is it that you're doing to build repair in order to be able to maintain that good relationship? And that I think is the And that takes a lot of humility, right, to be able to do that, to say, I am wrong. I own my wrongness. (laughs) Tell me what I have to do for you in order to make you feel safe with me again, in order to make you feel that I care for you again, that I respect you again, and then doing those things without complaint or grumbling because you think the most important thing is to repair that relationship. You've used a word a couple of times just in our conversation, and I don't remember it coming up that often in the book. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Humility. Um, You've used that word a number of times just now, and talking about your own humility in the face of understanding better what it means to be indigenous first. And in the book, you chronicle some at least one, probably I think several incidents where you made a misstep and you did that thing that people do with indigenous people where you assume that they're going to want to play this role in the the project. (laughs) Right, you do this. And it it was, tell me a little bit, because I feel like like I know you from reading the book. Tell me a little bit about that humility. Like where did you you come by it? Like how did you Um, decide to have that or trigger it or begin it? How were you given humility? Because I think for listeners, people like me, I run a design studio when I'm not hosting a podcast and we work, we create experiences and exhibitions for museums. And a lot of the listeners to the show are doing something similar or supporting those who do. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening are thinking like, 
wow, this is great. I'd, I'd like to, I'm eager, I'm desperate to begin this project myself. I'm not sure how, but I think humility might be a key to that. Your book is, after all, called, a, it, it, the, the subtitle is about cultural justice. What is that humility? How can we all get a big <laughs> dose of it? Because I think that might chart, that might get us going. Yeah. Um, so for me, it has to do with a couple of things. One, understanding my true power. I'm when I wrote this, I was dean of design at OCAD, which is a, is, is a position of great power uh -huh. in the institution. I could say no to things, and it wouldn't happen. That's what I'm defined. And with that kind of real power comes a lot of responsibility, but it also re it requires a lot of humility because you want to make sure that you're using the power to serve and you're using the power to serve those who are most vulnerable in the system, which means, which means you have to, you spend more time listening. You spend more time trying to understand so that when you're in a position to make a decision, that you're doing so in a way that doesn't do more harm, right? Doesn't do more harm. So the humility comes from, in some ways, me realizing the position of power that I was in, the position, understanding that people were looking at me to perform good relations. Um, and the other part of it was, and this I talked about, I think, a little bit at the talk at the SEGT, is also realizing that for someone to call you out is an act of love. It is saying that, hey, I want to be in good relations with you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to dismiss you in any way, shape, or form. I'm not trying to disrespect you. I'm trying to tell you that you are doing things that bring us out of harmony with one another. So I need you to listen to what I'm saying so that you can understand how we get back to being in good harmony with one another. Um, and once I think that for me was like the flip that once I, I realized that these are took my ego out of it, that I realized that this is an act of love to call me out. It is an act of love to be vulnerable enough to say what you're doing is hurting me, right? That then I changed my attitude and said, okay, I need to listen. I need to understand. And then I need to practice that understanding when I have opportunities to quote unquote what little power I have in order to shift a decision in the room to take into account the things that I've heard about how that decision might harm someone who's not in the room or even if they're in the room don't feel brave enough to say it in the room so a lot of it is just realizing the power that I'm in and the responsibility that comes with that power and we all have, again, domains over which we have power. So again, this was writ large for me being the dean, but you know, even now as I shift that and not being a dean, it's that I still have a lot of power over specific domains. So am I using that in a way that's responsible, which requires the humility of me to listen to a wide variety of people and how my decisions might be impacting them. Well, it, it sounds like that humility. There are deans who do not have humility, and there are designers <laughs> who do not have humility, and presumably there are deans of design who do not have humility. Yeah. I think if you... Well, in design, and in the design in San Razor's whole, again, a story of design that we tell ourselves that actually requires a lot of hubris. I'm going to go out and change this. I'm going to go out and disrupt this. I'm going to go out and make this upon the world. So there's a little bit of like tension in that where as a designer, you're, sometimes people don't see and understand the vision, right? 
And so you have to step away from people in order to show them possibilities that they may not be able to see or understand. And there's a kind of, there can be a kind of hubris or pride as part of that, but it's necessary and sometimes in other ways to help cultures and communities grow by expanding the possibilities that they can engage with that becomes part of the pool of decision making. And so there's a tempering in some ways that has to happen of understanding where, and maybe this is where authenticity becomes important because in in many ways, again, I can listen to other people. I can adapt myself in order to prioritize the relationship, right? But I can't do so to the extent to which I lose a sense of who I am, that I become inauthentic to who I am, because then I'm actually creating disharmony, right? Because when we want to connect to people, we want to connect to the most authentic version of who they are. So if I'm faking it in order to fit in, then I'm not, then I'm being dishonest, right? I'm being dishonest. And so, there is a there is a tension and a balance that has to happen, but it's the balance has to be between what I'm offering to someone through my humility is the opportunity for us to be our most authentic selves, not fake, right? Because once we introduce a lie into the relationship, then the relationship is over, right? So... There is that tension that has to be maintained and balanced because the whole point is authentic connection. What we're asking for in decolonization is, in many ways, many individuals or communities have had to be inauthentic in order to survive within the systems that are being created. So what we're doing is we're trying to, that humility is necessary to open up space for people to feel safe to bring their most authentic selves to the interaction into the relationship. I was, I, when I was reading the book, I was thinking to myself, I was turning pages and I was thinking, well, I expected the book to be a polemic or a provocation. And it is indeed that. It is indeed that. I didn't expect the degree to which it's a personal, it's to, to the, the degree to which it's biographical, which I think it gives it its authenticity. But it's also a sort of a sprawling history lesson as oh, well. Yeah. If you're, you know, the the invention of the cotton gin did what? Discuss. <laughs> it's like, you thought it did this? It didn't. It did that. Let's just make sure we remember that. Or the history of the Bauhaus and what Johannes Itten thought about certain things. It's really, it's that too. But from what you were just saying, it's also therapy. Right? Yeah. It's about yeah. relationships and kind of therapy and coaching on how to be your best self. But what is this book oh. not? Okay, so <laughs> one thing. Well, but I think what? this is the, because people have said like, you've mixed memoir with scholarship with this, with that. And it's, but that's the most authentic expression of who I am. Like, I am a scholar. Like, I've been trained. I have a PhD from Stanford. I'm a scholar. I've been trained to read theory. I've been trained to do this. I am also a person, though, like, again, that let's say, comes from feminist traditions, which means you, the again, the personal is the political. So you have to weave in that narrative just so that people know where I'm coming from to be able to say the sure. things that I'm saying. And you need to understand that because where I'm coming from might see things at a different view than what you're used to. And so that the novelty, maybe, for example, or the resonance for people who might be closer to the identities that I hold, like that, if you don't know that, then you can't build a relationship to that. And then it's there's aspects that are very practical. These are the top five things that you have to do because I spent a lot of time in consulting. And so it's a thing where you can weave this beautiful story. But then if you want people to take action, you're like, okay, these are the five things that you can do that you can take away and begin to implement. So that it's not, I'm not here just to make you think, I'm asking you to think and to feel in order for you to be more confident in acting. And if I can give you a sense of, I'm overwhelmed by all these things, 
okay, let me sum it down into three. <laughs> so that at least you might resonate and move into action on one of the three. But that's like the whole sense of who I am and all my lived experiences coming together in the things that I know about people and what I like to write and what I like to do and the desire for people to act, right? That's pulling it all together. But it is the most genuinely authentic expression of who I am because I am all of those things. I'm very practical, but very theoretical. I'm very, and that's not an opposition, is that you think in order to act more effectively and engagingly and justly, right? Yeah. And by the way, I'm by no means casting aspersions on no, no, all the it's... dimensions of the book. I think <laughs> something that's delightful is just opening something up and getting something that you expected, but also something you didn't expect. And I think it's I think it's absolutely great. But on that subject about the practical on the so as the book review, as the New York Times book review said, step by step instructions for reducing bigotry's impact. So I, I would like to get to my favorite chapter, which mm-hmm. is chapter four. Because <laughs> it, it really is speaking, we were talking before about whether this is selfish or not, but for myself and for the community that I'm part of and I represent and the, the firm that I manage, to get to that point of talking about what you refer to in the book as probably the most important or the most visible form of decolonizing and DEI, which is recruiting. Because the these institutions we're trying to break down are made of people. So you need to change the people. It's not the columns and the archives are actually incidental. It's the people in them. So you need to change who the people are and who they think and actually who they are. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh There are, again, I think you're going back to first principles on this, and a lot of organizations are doing DEI initiatives, and you, there's two terms that you brought up on stage at SCGD and also in the book that I had never heard before, and I misunderstood both of them the first time. And one of them is the terms, we're talking about DEI and hiring, and one of them is the term super token, yeah, <laughs> which refers to a person that, that a firm hires, and the other is cluster hire. Okay. And those two things are one sounds good, but it's bad, and the other one sounds bad, but it's good. Can you explain <laughs> for the listeners yeah. what those two things are? And I believe in the book, you call yourself yeah. one yeah. of those things. So I'll tell they'll start with the, the origin of super token, because that is a term that I did sort of create myself. I was the first I well, M was the first black and black dean of a faculty design anywhere in the world when I got, took the job at OCAD University. And so many people would ask me, Well, what does it mean to be like the first? <laughs> and I always would answer it's bittersweet because on the one hand, yes, great, a barrier has been broken. But you also have to reflect on, I I might be brilliant, but I know I'm not the most brilliant person in the world. So you think of all the other people who before you should have had that opportunity and didn't because all these structures that were in place that kept them out of it, right? So then it asks the question, well, what is it about me that pushed through all those barriers, right? And I say, I'm a super token. And what I mean is I'm an individual who has talents that are so desirable by an institution that it is willing to overlook its innate aversion to the identities that I carry in order to have access to the talent. So I am very good at, let's say, pattern recognition. And what that does is that it allows me to ride the waves of the pattern in some ways that I can see the potential features, right? Which again, in decision-making, you're always trying to figure out what's going to be next so you can plan for it. The other intelligence that I have around sort of pattern recognition is like, I understand people generally well, and that's been reinforced by my anthropological training so that I can understand how to connect with people in a way to get them to act and move forward. And then the other aspect of pattern recognition is that I'm able to see alternative ways of moving forward so I can be quite innovative in my thinking and get an institution to pivot. So many institutions have loved and enjoyed this talent, but have struggled with the fact that it's embodied by this cis female gendered Black woman who, again, in the narrative of who I'm supposed to be, Black women are supposed to be, I define that narrative in many ways. 
So when institutions have said, okay, we want to hire more black folks, we want to hire more diverse folks, they look for people who, again, in the meritocracy that we talk about, have succeeded. I have a PhD from Stanford. I went to Bryn Mawr College, a women's college in Philadelphia, a very elite institution. Um, you know, I've, I've had all these examples of leadership in my CV leading the U.S. National Design Policy Initiative. But all of those things are not necessary. There's lots of people who are deans, for example, of design schools who do not have to, have not had to have that level of achievement in order to obtain that position. So to be the first means you have to be extraordinarily exceptional within the meritocracy, which is not a meritocracy system, so that any reason anyone has to say no, they can't say no based on that criteria. So if it's if you're looking at level of education, PhD from Stanford, you can't say no to that because that's like the pinnacle, right? If it has to do with like leadership experiences, led an entire initiative, you can't say that. If you're if the criteria is like Again, having to serve in leadership, I've served as an associate dean, right? So all those things you couldn't be able to say no to if you wanted to for reasons that had to do with racism or sexism or all these other ways in which we keep people out. So when institutions that want to say we are maintaining a meritocracy, what eventually say we want to hire for diversity, then they're looking for a super token, Right. Some person who, again, has some amazing talent to be able to succeed and flourish within these systems of non-veritocracy that we've set up. And then they say, we can have this one. And they're very few, right? They're very, very few. We can have this one as our representative of diversity because their ability to succeed in their systems means that they haven't necessarily challenged those systems. So we can safely bring them in and they'll just rise to the top of the system, but they won't dismantle the system. They'll just be part of it, right? And that's why there are very few, right? What happens in that situation is that, let's say, as the super token, you can respond in many ways, and many of them have for their own survival, right? Which is you assimilate to the system. You go play golf with everyone. You, if you're required to smoke cigars and drink brandies at the club, you go do that, right? And you maintain your position. You maintain, again, this elite position because most of the time you're aiming for an elite position. Or you can be willing to take risks, which is can we begin to bring in systems that begin to dismantle the institution so that the next person who comes in doesn't have to have a PhD from Stanford. The next person who comes in doesn't have to have led the U.S. National Design Policy Initiative in order to demonstrate their leadership, right? You begin to, what we've done at OCAD is that we change the criteria of evaluation to take into account that Black people have been excluded. Black people have been, and the Indigenous people and other people, once you set up the systems of inclusion, everyone's able to go into them. So um, what you did in that case, I thought was, I, I read that with a lot of focus because you, you didn't just change the criteria, you created alternative criteria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And you were mentioning one, that one of your recruits who actually ended up joining as a faculty, a tenured faculty track, tenure track faculty men member said that they read the original job posting and they were like, this posting exactly describes me. So those alternative criteria, when I read them, I was like, oh, these are great criteria. Who wouldn't want to have somebody with these capabilities? So like you were saying, instead of you're, you're a hard act to follow. Yes. Right? <laughs> Doc, Dr. Dory, that's what, kind of what you're saying. You're a, and therefore, that's why I was, when I read Super Token, I was like, oh, that's super, that's like Superwoman. It's super. No, actually, it, in some ways, it, because Dr. Dory is a hard act to follow, it's, it actually can make the problem a little worse. But then when you yeah, did your cluster hire, you had these alternative criteria. So instead of leading a national whatever, you can be someone who has had a strong voice in the community, like those yeah, kinds of yeah. things. And the way you laid it out, it was like, 
very mm-hmm. candidate shall need to have either this or this. And if you do not, you cannot be a candidate. But okay. if you have this thing instead, that is also very good and we will hire you. And I thought that was just great. I'm probably I'm just not nearly as knowledgeable as I should be, but I thought that was terrific. Well, and so then the cluster hire becomes important because in order in some ways to be able to have that broadness of criteria, you need to have hire more than one person at a time. Because if you're hiring one person at a time, you're always going to try to choose the super token. Because it's like, this person's exceptional. They have a PhD from Yale. <laughs> how, can we, how can we say no to this person, right? But if you're saying, actually, we're not looking and when... So CAD has done various cluster hires. Their first was an indigenous cluster hire, so putting indigenous first. The success of that then made it more safe for the institution to do our black cluster hire, which is the one I talk about the most in the book. And then we actually had another indigenous cluster hire following that. And now OCAD's had a very variety of, they've had IBPOC cluster hires or whatever. But it just means most of the time when we hire now, we hire in groups. (laughs) And the cluster hire becomes important because, again, if you're a super token, you are the one. And that creates so much pressure for you to assimilate. It also minimizes the impact you're able to have in the institution. Because if you're in a, if you're on a table and there's five people, your one isn't necessarily enough to carry through and over the voices of the other four people to change the decision. You might inject a little bit of a nuance into the conversation, but if the other four people said, no, it's not going to happen. So by introducing the cluster, it allows you to say, which is what we did at OCAD, is, oh, we're not just looking for the super token. We have three candidates. We want the top person who Again, the alternative thing is like community connector. So they're excellent, but they've demonstrated their excellence in the domain of community engagement because they've been structurally excluded from the post-secondary sector. And then a Praxis star was the other one we looked at. So again, person who's killing it in the field, it's industry, didn't necessarily get post-secondary credentials to be able to do that. But again, they're brilliant just demonstrating it in a different domain. And then we had, okay, you have your academic, who normally is what we consider to be the super token within that group, right? So having three ones, we could ask for, what is your top three candidates as it relates to each of these profiles or personas, right? So this is me using, I worked in consultancies, right? UX consultancies. We had personas, we had criteria within that. That's me taking all of that design knowledge and putting it in the framework of like HR and hiring to say, we don't have just one persona that we're designing this system for. We have three personas for whom we're designing this. And wouldn't it be brilliant that we'd be able to have representations for each of those quote unquote user groups that we want to embrace to bring into the institution? I think that's great. That's just also, it's just very catchy. Normally in an academic hiring situation, you're looking for your academic achievers along particular dimensions that are set in stone and have been sitting around as part of this broken system forever. But just (laughs) even Praxis Star, even the copy that you wrote for Praxis Star, (laughs) can I get a mug that just says Praxis Star on it? Can I get a tote bag that says Community Connector? Can we like get some merch with this? It's just very catchy. And I I say that just to be a, a little bit goofy, but also because I think those that's news that the audience that listeners can use the idea that to translate that into let's say you are a design department in a museum or you're a design firm and you're looking you wouldn't be looking for academic standard boilerplate academic resume check boxes you'd be looking for the other part of you door the uh, the consulting the designing the which clients give me your client list oh reebok ho ho you want things like that but if you want to get somebody who's been systematically excluded from being considered to do lead work for Reebok, then go and find your Praxis star who's doing other things, doing other kind, designing other things. But good Lord, they look gorgeous. Let's apply that thing to this Reebok <laughs> yeah, thing and yeah. you'll sell twice as many Reeboks, et cetera. So I think that's really some news you can use. Just the idea, if the criteria that you fall back on without thinking again and again for your hiring don't work, change the criteria 
right. write down another set and now it will work. It's such a simple idea, but it's, I, I think there are a lot of listeners out there who are struggling with how do we take that first step? We tried this, but we couldn't find any, now I'll use the word that I know, super tokens. We went shopping for some super tokens and they were all taken. So we just gave up <laughs> this idea of like, here's this other step. This other step is going to work. But I don't want to make it seem like it's easy. You're describing as, oh, write some criteria and then da-da-da. In your book, there's like tears. There's, yeah. a, there's, there's a resignation letter kept in a drawer. It, there's someone has to talk you off a cliff. It's not an actual cliff. Listeners, yeah. there's no actual cliffs here. But it wasn't easy. <laughs> and but, that's part of the impetus to write the book was that, so again, this is coming out of 2020 and all these institutions say, we're going to hire a new DI consultant or or just tell us how to do this, how to do this better. And and what I was, in the conversations, the real conversations I was hiring, having with all of these new indigenous black POC people who've been putting these positions of leadership, even if they're not the leaders, that they've been asked to take on these DI initiatives, that it's like you do understand how painful, you have to understand how painful it is to be constantly going up against the structures of the institution because that's what they're asking you to do. And it is personally painful. <laughs> it's institutionally painful. And you have to understand the truth of what they're asking you to do because they give, might give you a shiny you know, title, but they may not even completely understand that your role there you are there to dismantle them. They're asking you to dismantle them. And that means they're going to push back against you in every way they can conceive of because you are there to threaten their institutional existence. Now, transformation comes out of that, right? Your point of doing this is transformation. So it's painful work because Many, many, many people will not just push back in a direct way, but it's it'll come from all sides. It'll come from the top, it'll come from the bottom, it'll come from there's lateral violence that happens. And that pushing back is a form of like institutional violence in the sense that they've brought you in to make these changes. So it's like you're being punished, you will be punished for doing your job well. And you will know that you're doing your job well by how hard back the institution pushes against you until they realize what it is that they are doing and what they need to do in order to do what it is that they said that they want to do, right? And you still have to be the one to tell them that. <laughs> no, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> pressure from all sides. Pressure from um, all sides. That's like the thing you're describing is whether it's a super token hire and you're the first or you're a cluster of a finite cluster or whatever, it, still these expectations are and you can a see little this bit now. inhuman. Well, you can see this now where it's been a couple of years out and a lot of diverse leaders or DEI leadership have been leaving institutions, mm. right? In droves. Yeah. Like CEOs, right? All, a lot of those right. diverse CEOs that were brought in just in yep. 2020 and a, and a few in academics, a few deans, yeah, yeah. a few deans of design that came after after you did not feel the support and started to say that those all those requirements, in addition to having a day job and relocating and moving your family and being a stranger in a strange town and all of that, are a little bit too much for anyone to take. Yeah, and that's and so I think part of part of it is people having a realistic set of expectations around what it means to do this work. If you're stepping into that role, you have to understand, again, this is going to be painful work. So my thing was making sure I had a support system, right? So I had I had a therapist on call. I had friends that I could check in with to make sure that the institution wasn't gaslighting me and telling me things that are going on and not going on. For me, but, what was important was realizing- But you had to put all those together. Yeah, the institution yeah. didn't hand you a welcome yeah. kit of, here's a therapist, and here's right. some secret friends, and here's a PR agency of your own. You had yes. to, in each one of those cases, literally think to do that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's the part where, again, it's a thing where why the book? So now, <laughs> so now anyone who sets in that position is, who's, and I, I'm, and again, I have conversations with people now. It's okay. What PR firm should I do? And how much should I be paying per month if they don't want to promote the things that I'm doing or what kind of therapist should I have and what sort of thing. And so part of writing the book was saying, was helping people to be prepared so that they didn't have to do the work of thinking of what I have to do to build support. They just have to do the work of, oh, these things sound good. Let me make sure I have those things so in the, place. So the, and the more importantly, is, the book the is a checklist for people who are following in your footsteps as well as yeah. the people, as well as the institutions. Right. Because the other part for the institutions is that and and again, I have to give great respect to OCAD University because they allowed me to tell the truth in the way that most, again, you know, as a dean, most of the stuff you do is under non-disclosure agreements, right? Because you're just dealing with so many private things. And so there was the conversation where we're doing the fact-checking and I'm sending the book to OCAD leadership and I'm saying, I want to talk about this because I think it's important for the mission of what we're all trying to achieve. And and again, kudos to OCAD saying, <laughs> change a few of these things and add a little bit of this. But yes, you're allowed to tell the story because this is not a story that you normally get. You don't, you normally don't get to tell the story of an institution bringing you to tears so that you're sitting with a resignation letter and do so using the very graphic language around roots and kuta kente and slave plantation. Like, no PR team for any institution would normally allow that story to come out with that much truth attached to it. And so this is part of, again, the luckiness that I had to be able to do this work at OCAD, which was an institution that was willing to do that work, a willing, understanding the importance of truth-telling in, in making sure that other institutions are prepared to do this work and support their employees that are trying to do this work. And again, I could tell the story and they're comfortable with the story because there's a happy ending. At the end of that, we get the cluster higher. It, the position descriptions goes viral because it was written in a way that resonated with the things that were important to this Black community we wanted to embrace. Hip-hop culture and Black features and Afrofuturism and all these things that were important to the community. And the community saw themselves and resonated with that. And then that set up all kinds of structures of support to the point where, you know, when I first started at the institution, the Black communities actually didn't know what OCAD University was. Like, I would go in there and say, hey, I'm Dory Tunstall, new dean of design at OCAD University. Who? What? OCAD what? What is that? To the point where I have, luckily, a contingent of, of Black faculty where we have parents saying, hey, my, my young person loves drawing, and but they're not sure about their portfolio. Can you look at my portfolio of my young person to see if this might be what they might need to do so that they can come to OCAD University. And the beautiful thing was that like I got to the point where I didn't have to do that work. I was like, oh, go talk to one of these 10 faculty members that, that we have in this particular field and they're more interested in architecture. Go talk to Michael Lee Foy if they're interested in graphic design, go talk to someone else. So it's a thing where that's the beauty of the system is that when communities feel that they've been embraced by an institution, that, that again, that institution is enabled to grow and develop because they will send, like people, communities will send their young people to places where they know they will be safe. And the goal is to be and again, this works if you're a design firm, you want the conversation <laughs> at the table between some young intern that you want to bring. You're like, oh, yeah, I, I know this company and they do really good work in the community. And I think you'll be able to really flourish there as opposed to they're sitting down having the conversation with their young person. Where, okay, you're going to have to work twice as hard to achieve half as much. Like that, as that the KPI for any design firm that is listening to this, it's like you want the conversation 
to be between the parent and the young person who might potentially work there to be, ah, this is where you'll flourish and grow, that they won't have to, you will have to work half as less <laughs> and achieve twice as much because they will see your brilliance and because you've come into this institution in the most authentic way, right? That's yeah. the conversation you want to happen over the table before they put together the application. That, uh, that is a great KPI to end on, <laughs> I think. That's not the normal key performance <laughs> indicator that you would have for a company, but it's mine now. So I have so many more questions. I'm just going to go reread the book again. That's what I'm going to do. Oh. But I just want to say, doctor, professor, dean, founder, Dory Tunstall, it has been an absolute honor to spend a little time with you. I feel it's a rare privilege, and I thank you for your time. And I hope that if listeners got half of what I got out of this session, they got a lot. So thank you on their behalf as well. I'd like to encourage all of my listeners to go out and get this book, uh, either at the library or a store or Kindle style. Although, uh, as the book points out, uh, better living through technology is a myth. <laughs> um, in the short term, that worked for me. Anyway, the book is Decolonizing Design, a Cultural Justice Guidebook by Elizabeth, parenthesis, Dory, and parenthesis, Tunstall, my guest today. For, for listeners who would like to get in touch with you, learn more about what you've been doing, or learn more about the new thing that you're doing, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? We'll put all your coordinates in the show notes, but for yeah. people who are washing the dishes right now, what do they Google or what do they type in? So if you want to know more about the book, there is a decolonizing design book dot wordpress.com so that mm -hmm. has all of the information i'm on tour so i'm basically on the road from all of october to half of november so it also has a list of where i'm going to be presenting around in different cities mostly in north america that's um, also on that same website yeah that's also for, on this for listeners website. by the way we're recording in uh, september of 2023 and those are 2023 dates so if you're listening in yeah. another year do not go running to your local bookstore, but unless the tour keeps well, the on tour going. Be, the tour will keep on going. Already I'm booking into, so most much of my winter and spring of 2024 is filling up. And so I'm starting to fill up for actually fall of 2024 already. <laughs> and that's where to get the book, but you're also doing a new thing. You mentioned at the top of the show that you are the founder of a new firm under your own name. Yeah. It is, if I remember correctly, that is there to consult to help companies to take this journey. Did I get that right? Am I remembering? You did. So it's named after me. So it's Dory Tunstall Incorporated. It's me and Kate Lee, who's like a former HRDI expert from Nike Corporation. And so we've come together to build a company to help, again, companies do this work of decolonizing design. And the website is not up quiet yet. That'll be up in the next month or so. We're just right now preparing a copy and have a really cool logo. But if you, they will be at DoryTunstall.com. So pretty simply, DoryTunstall.com and it'll be ready in November. That is, uh, so listeners, you just got a sneak peek. You just got an exclusive <laughs> listeners. Think about that. Okay, this is great. So I think we covered it. This has been terrific. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com, hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger. I'm always looking out for new links in or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. By the way, did you know this podcast has an older sister? It's a short newsletter three days a week under the same name, one quick insight each day for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe at makingthemuseum.com, big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now. <laughs>